morning. Let's sing together. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one, Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. What a great idea. Thanks for modeling that for us. You know, sometimes it does take losing something and then gaining it back, right the, the way it was to begin with, to give you the perspective that you didn't have uh, all along. Uh, have you ever noticed most movies are like that? Many movies are like that. It'll start off, you know, status quo, and who likes status quo? You know, it's kind of like us in this room. Here we are, start in this room, I don't like this room. Okay, really? Let's take it away from you. <laughs> And now all of a sudden it's, boy, isn't it, be great, isn't it great to be back in this room? <laughs> Nothing changed but our heart and our perspective. This week our daughter Katie asked me if I had seen her phone charger. And I said, no, I hadn't. And she says, oh, it's not where it's supposed to be. I've looked everywhere. I can't find it. Ten minutes later I hear across the house, oh. And she walked in and she said, I looked everywhere, and then I thought, well, I'll look one more time where it's supposed to be, and it was right there all along. <laughs> you know, as she shared that with me, I thought, that's how I have felt reading the Bible so far this year. That's what I love about the Word of God. It's inexhaustible. As many times as I've read it, there's always something fascinating and new that uh, the Lord brings to mind. And particularly with the Gospels, and particularly with the Gospel of John, I have read the Gospel of John many times. I've taught from it a number of times. And there's parts of the Gospels that have struck me recently like they've never, they never have before. It's like coming back to the same place again and finding something there that was all, all, there all along, but you just didn't see it the first time. It's like uh, having something, losing it, and gaining it again, and you realize what a tremendous blessing it is. What was it that I saw that I, I want to share that with you this morning? It's not just from John. It's actually from a number of places, but it's a hope that Jesus had. In fact, it was his primary hope. I, I've come to understand and believe that there was one single driving focus, one factor, one determining goal that Jesus had. Now, typically you want to think, oh, it was the cross. And I'm not sure it was. I think the cross was simply the means to get to this goal. And as I've read through the scriptures just over and over, the one thing that drove Jesus Christ through his ministry, and it's the same thing, that should drive us in our lives. And I'm not going to tell you what it is right now. But we will see it. 
but I want to sort of reveal it to you so that you get the same sort of sense of awe of the Word of God that I got. So we're not going to start in John. I'd like to start in Psalm 68. So turn with me, if you would, to Psalm, Book of Psalms, chapter 68. I wish we had time to go verse by verse through Psalm 68, but instead we're going to use the theology of this great Psalm of David sort of as a springboard to its New Testament fulfillment. Let's begin in, uh, not in verse 1, but with the superscription. Incidentally, you know the superscriptions are also inspired? And by superscription, I mean the text that comes right before verse 1. And by superscription, I don't mean what the editors have stuck in there. Like my New American Standard says, the nations exhorted to praise God. That's not inspired. That was written by the, the Holmans or whoever published this. What is inspired is what it says, for the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm, uh, Psalm 68. For the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. This is in the Hebrew text. It's in the original text. And so it's significant as we, as we go through a few verses here, we'll see why the superscription means something. So look at verse 1. David says, Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him. So let's just pause there for a moment. David writes, Let God arise. I hope in your margin you have a cross-reference to Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. Numbers 10, 35 is basically what David is quoting here. Numbers 10.35 is what was said when the ark of God was moved. It says specifically that's what Moses said when the ark of God was moved. The ark of the covenant, you know, the physical, the Indiana Jones ark, the, the ark where the, the mercy seat of solid gold and every year the high priest would go in on the day of atonement. And the Shekinah glory, the physical presence of God among his people, dwelt above the mercy seat between the cherubim, the ark. And whenever the ark would move from place to place and go and would lead God's people, Moses would say, arise and let God's enemies be scattered. So here's where the superscription becomes significant. David wrote this. Can you think of a time in David's life when the ark moved? Sure we can. When he moved it from Kiryat Ja'arim up to Jerusalem. Now once he didn't do it right, but the second time he did it right. And it seems to be that David wrote Psalm 68 in honor or on the occasion of the moving of the ark to Jerusalem. Because he begins with this verse, and as the psalm goes on, we'll see it's not just this verse that gives that implication, but there's much more. David describes the movement of the ark. Um, verse 1 through 6, we're not going to read the whole psalm, but just sort of a summary. Verse 1 through 6 is about praise, and verses 7 through 18 are about procession, the procession of the ark. Look at verse 7. David continues, O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked. 
the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. So David takes us back. He's not just talking about the movement of the ark from Kiryat Ja'arim, just a few miles west of Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. He's talking about the movement of the ark all the way back from Sinai, hundreds of years prior to David. So this is a procession that is far more significant than simply relocating the ark one more time. David is basically saying the movement of the ark to Jerusalem is the, the goal of the ark. The physical presence of God in the ark began at Sinai, and its ultimate destination is Jerusalem. Look down at verse 16. David asks, Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode. Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them, as at Sinai in holiness. Uh, again, the context is a little broader than we can go into detail, but basically David is saying, of all the mountains in Israel, and particularly he mentions those that are far up north, he says, why would God pick Jerusalem. If you want to pick a great mountain, let's pick Mount Hermon up north or somewhere up there in, in the great mountain range of Mount Hermon. But instead, God picked lowly Mount Zion, which in itself is a sermon that God doesn't often pick what we would pick, that he picks something lowly and far more humbling. But the point is that it's Mount Zion, the mountain which God has desired for his abode. Jerusalem. And notice again uh, in, in verse 18 as we continue. David writes, You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord may dwell there. So David again speaks of the ark of God's presence as a processional. But he goes beyond that. It's not just a processional, ultimately from Sinai to Jerusalem, but it is an ascension. Look at that verse 18. You have ascended on high. So when he speaks of you, God, moving from Sinai to Jerusalem, he speaks of God ascending. The presence, the physical presence of God among his people, ascending from Sinai to Jerusalem. You have ascended on high. And I hope that this verse sounds familiar to you because Paul quotes this verse in Ephesians. So let's leave Psalm 68 and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Those of you who grew up Baptist are going to have a leg up on some of the others today with your Bible drills. You ever do Bible drills as a Baptist? You sit there with your Bible closed like this, and the teacher calls out, you know, Psalm 5, and the first one that can get there wins something. Well, we won't be racing today to see who's the first person to get there, but it will challenge you a little bit. We're going to look at quite a few verses because we're going to talk about what Paul is uh, going to elaborate on here, and that is the ascension of Jesus. 
The physical presence of God embodied in the ark is shown to be, I don't want to call it a type uh, as much as you could say, but Paul clearly refers to it as a metaphor or as something that, that teaches us. It's a, it's a means of teaching the ascension of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 7. Paul writes, But to each one of us grace was, was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let me, let me do that again. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. There he's quoting Psalm 68. And then he goes on. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Probably referring to uh, what... Paul wrote at the end of chapter 1 where it talks about Christ's rule of all things at God's right hand, the sovereignty of Christ. But rather than focusing on that part of it, his little parenthetical sidebar, look again where it says that he ascended on high. Paul is quoting Psalm 68 verse 18, and maybe it might be better to say that he's summarizing the psalm in this verse because uh, Psalm 68 says that he received gifts from men, and Paul, when he quotes it, says that he gave gifts to men, which Psalm 68 goes on to say about God. So it's probably more that Paul is summarizing all of the psalm as he talks about how Christ uh, redeemed us, and we became his. We became his captives, as it were, of grace, a captives of freedom, which is a wonderful paradox. And as a result, he gave gifts to men, it says. But the context of Ephesians goes on to say that the gifts that he gave are not abilities, per se, but they are gifted people. That God's gift to the church is not the gift of teaching or the gift of helps or the gift of service. It's gifted people. It's teachers. It's helpers. It's servers. It's apostles, it's prophets. His gift to the church is people. And that's significant for us when we think about application because um, each one of us is gifted. We just read that. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of us is gifted in a different way to serve in the body of Christ. But it's helpful for us to remember that the giftedness that we have is not our gift. God did not gift me. He did not give me the gift of teaching for me. He gave it for you. He did not gift you with your gift for you, but for the church. He gave gifts to men. It doesn't mean that he gave you your particular spiritual gift, but rather he gave people to the church. He gave apostles and prophets, as it goes on to say, some, and some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints of the work of service. You are God's gift to the body of Christ, and your particular emphasis is missing if we don't participate in it. You know, it's interesting that the gift here is 
the, the spiritual gifts are gifts of the Holy Spirit. We know that. They're gifts of the Spirit. Psalm 68, which we just read, actually was read at Pentecost throughout church history, which is so insightful of the church throughout history to understand that him giving gifts to men is basically like giving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the spiritual gifts that were distributed to God's people. Um, under the inspiration of the Spirit, both David in Psalm 68, Paul in Ephesians 4, liken the ark's ascension from the Exodus to Jerusalem to Jesus' ascension from Jerusalem to heaven or from earth to heaven. And so this is, when I said Jesus had one driving, single, dominating hope in his life, it was the ascension. The cross was the means by which he got to the ascension. And as I said, you, I read, read through the word so, so many times uh, in life, and yet it was this year that just passages of the ascension just keep coming out in the Gospels. And I want us to look at a few of those so that you see I'm not just making this up. Um, turn, let's look at a few of these first of all. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Turn over to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 30. The Baptists are already there, but we'll wait for the rest of you. Luke 9.30. Behold, this is speaking of the, the transfiguration. Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Speaking of his departure. Um, that word, therefore, departure, in the Greek is the word exodus, which is sort of a nice touch there with Moses standing there. Spoke of his departure or his exodus. So why are they talking about his departure? Because what happens before his departure is ultimately the cross. So the emphasis here is not just the cross, the crucifixion, but Jesus' ascension. In the same chapter, look at verse 51. Luke 9, 51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. It doesn't say the cross, but the ascension. Now, turn to um, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We've got quite a few verses here in John. John 6, 61. Long chapters. John 6, 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Chapter 7, verse 33. John 7:33 Therefore Jesus said for a little while longer I am with you then I go to him who sent me That's the ascension Turn to chapter 16 John 16 
John 16, verse 5. Jesus said, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? Verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me. Verses 16 and 17. A little while, and you will see me, you will no longer see me, and again in a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while you will not see me, and a little while you will see me, and because I go to the Father. Verse 28. Jesus said, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. That's the ascension. One more. Chapter 17, verse 13. This is Jesus' great high priestly prayer. So now Christ is talking to the Father. Verse 13. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. So, as we've just surveyed a number of verses, I hope that you see that the ascension was a huge part of Christ's passion for going to Jerusalem. It wasn't simply to lay down his life at the cross. But it was, as Paul wrote in Philippians, when he said, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and ultimately sat down at the right hand of God. It was the joy set before him that was Jesus' driving passion. I will endure the cross. I will despise its shame because I know what's coming. And Paul says we need to have that exact same attitude. Okay, I said one more, but you know teachers never mean that. Turn back to John 14. I guess what I meant is one more in the the mad dash across the Gospels. But now we're going to settle in for um, a spot here in John chapter 14. John 14. John chapter 14. Remember the ark. The ark didn't go up to Jerusalem by itself when David took it. David took it and the ark led a processional. It wasn't just everyone you know, being glad, you know, waving the ark as it headed up to Jerusalem, but everyone was behind it. David was behind it, dancing and rejoicing. There was, it was a processional the ark was leading. The Lord was leading. So when you think about Jesus and his ascension, you don't want to make this walk on all fours, but there is an element of truth in that same comparison. That Christ's ascension is not just Christ when you look at the big picture of God's grand plan, but Christ leads a processional. And he gives us a hint of that in John 14. Look at John 14, these very familiar verses. The first three we'll read. Christ says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, pause there for just a second. My Father's house, this is heaven. This is where he's going. This is where he is right now. 
And he says, I'm going there. I'm going to the Father. This is the ascension. But he also says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So in other words, Jesus says, I'm going to heaven, but I'm also going to come back and get you and take you there, that where I am, you will be also. This is the first mention of the rapture in the Bible. The first mention of the rapture. Paul didn't invent the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4 is not the first time that we get to see the rapture. And this isn't the second coming. Because notice he talks about going to heaven, getting us, and going back to heaven. The second coming is him coming to earth and reigning here for a thousand years. This is talking about the rapture. This is talking about our hope about something that could happen at any moment right now. And, and, and Jesus says, I'm going to get you and I'm going to lead you there. So think about him and ultimately our ascension at the rapture. Have you ever thought about the rapture as your ascension? It is. It is. Just as Christ's resurrection is a preview of our resurrection, Jesus' ascension is a preview of our ascension. Uh, Paul goes on, of course, and develops the, the doctrine of the rapture so much more fully. But I love how Jesus basically comes and leads us home. Um, Peter, when he wrote in his first epistle, he said, we need to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope completely. The ascension was Jesus' driving passion. Your ascension, your resurrection is your driving passion. It is what we are looking forward to. Well, we've talked a lot about Christ's ascension, but we haven't read it yet. So why don't we do that? Let's look at Acts chapter 1, at this great event. Don't lose John 14. We'll come right back to it, so keep your finger there. But Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Acts 1, verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. The apostles, the disciples, were very fixed on what you and I are fixed on. Lord, we're ready now for the kingdom. I mean, now we get it. You had to die. You'd be resurrected. That's great. Now, now is the kingdom going to come? That's what they wanted the whole ministry of Jesus. And now that they got it all figured out, it makes sense. The kingdom can start now. And Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not when. That's up to the Father. 
and we're going to let him decide that. What you need to be determined, focused on is not the, the when, but the what. What are you to be doing in the meantime? And so he tells them, you're to be witnesses. First of all, you're to wait for the Holy Spirit. And then second, you're to witness in the world. To wait and to witness. Well, the Holy Spirit has come, and so now they are to witness, and we are. You know, Paul wrote in, our, in that familiar text, 1 Timothy, he said, there's one God and there's one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We typically simply assign that role of mediation to the cross, that Jesus is our sacrifice. He is the one who is the mediator between God and men in the sense of we believe in his death on the cross and we go to heaven. But Jesus' uh, ministry as a mediator or as an intercessor goes far beyond simply dying on the cross. I mean, that was essential. But you know, Jesus was a mediator far before the cross. Every time he prayed for his disciples, he was a mediator. Think about Christ as a mediator in prayer. So I ask you to keep your hand in John 14. Look there once again. Look down at verse 12, and we'll read a few verses here. John says, uh, uh, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. So Jesus says, when I ascend, I will ask the Father. I will intercede for you, and he will send you the Holy Spirit. Jesus going away is good news, because when he goes, he sends the Holy Spirit. You see, when Christ ascended, he didn't just sit down at the right hand of God and order some iced tea and just sip it until the rapture. He is busy. He is busy interceding for us. Um, You know, last week was Ascension Sunday. We don't talk about Ascension Sunday a whole lot in our tradition. It's, um, It's not something that we really emphasize. And in a sense, I think, I think that's sort of a shame because the ascension has a lot to teach us, not simply what we've looked at so far. But because Christ has ascended, there are at least five benefits to you as a Christian. Five benefits. And I want to I list them for you. I'll read the verses. I won't ask you to turn there, but I'll mention them. So if you want to jot it down, there's five benefits and some verses that will go along to back that up. And here's number one. Jesus asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit to us. Jesus asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit to us. We've actually already read that, but that's in John chapter 14, verse 16. But here's the second one. Our judge is also our advocate. Boy, isn't that good news. Our judge is also our lawyer, might be another way to say it. How'd you like to have your lawyer also be your judge? Your lawyer, the one who's for you, to be the one who makes the decision about whether you live or die. And the verses are Romans 8, verses 33 through 34, and 1 John 2, 1 to 2. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who judges. Who is the one who condemns? 
Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus is our judge, and he is also our advocate. The ascension gives us that benefit. And I love the, the particulars of, this, uh, of these verses. It talks about Jesus who was raised, who, who, uh, who died, past tense, but now present tense, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. And the way that word intercedes is written in the original language is written in such a way that indicates that it is something that he continually does for us. Um, remember during the Last Supper when Peter promised that he would never deny Jesus? What Jesus said to him, he didn't go on and say, oh yes, you will. He just simply said, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? I love that. I have prayed for you, and when that your faith may not fail, and when you turn again. In other words, you're going to blow it, but you're also going to turn again. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What a great progression. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a small little hint at what Jesus does when he intercedes for you. Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. Let's take Peter out of it for just a second and put your name in it. Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. But I, Jesus, have prayed for you, am praying for you, maybe we could change the verb tense, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. See, the process, of the benefit of Jesus' intercession for you is not to keep you saved. Okay, you're, I mean, you're saved if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. But we're talking about, um, we're talking about kind of an, an aspect of, uh, of not being set aside, of not being a wasted life, but that the prayer and the intercession that Jesus gives you helps you realize, look, you're not, God's not done with you, even though you failed. That when you turn and you realize that you've blown it, like Peter did, that you can use that experience to go into the life of somebody else who's struggling and strengthen your brothers and your sisters. Well, here's the third one. Because Jesus' intercession for us is permanent, our salvation is secure. Because Jesus' intercession for us is permanent, our salvation is is secure. Hebrews 7 verses 24 and 25 says this, Jesus on the other hand because he continues forever holds his priesthood permanently therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The NIV translates the word forever that Jesus is able to save forever as save completely, which may be a little better 
uh, translation there. It's, it's the idea of not just a security of salvation, but rather a completeness, a thoroughness of salvation. It's not just that you're saved and now you're considered justified, but Jesus is also committed to you becoming sanctified or growing. Because he is there to intercede for you, he is part of that process of you becoming sanctified and becoming more like Jesus Christ himself. Number four, Jesus understands our weaknesses and therefore he is able to help us in temptation. Jesus understands our weaknesses and he is able to help us in temptation. Hebrews 2 verse 18 and chapter 4 verse 15. Hebrews 2:18 and 4:15 says this, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4:15 says this, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. These verses show us that Jesus endured everything that we as humans have endured, and yet he did it without sinning. And because he suffered through the things that he endured, he is a high priest. He is someone who intercedes for us, not just on an academic level, but on an experiential level. He knows how hard it is. He experienced it himself. In fact, he experienced the difficulty of it even greater because he did it faithfully. Uh, None of us can say that we've done that. But the point is, if you think that nobody understands how you're feeling, that's not right. Christ does. That no one understands your hurt, Christ does. And because he does, because he understands your weakness and whatever your situation is, he is able to help you in the midst of that temptation. How does he do that? Number five, he provides mercy and grace when we ask. He provides mercy and grace when we ask. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says this, Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Those are broad terms, mercy, grace, time of need. But what about my specific need? What's that going to look like? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. And you know, it doesn't need to tell us. It gives us the truth in general terms so that you can apply it in whatever situation that you're in. That you may receive mercy and grace in time of need. If you are a Christian, you may draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That you may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. Now, you may be here today and not be a Christian. And if that's the case, then this promise isn't available for you yet until you come to the place of realizing that God's standard for heaven is perfection. It's holiness, just like Christ. And you don't measure up. None of us measure up to that. And living a great life of faithfulness is never going to be enough to earn that. So if it's our sin that's the problem, then God takes that sin away when he placed it on Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is simply believe that Jesus paid that penalty for you and your sins are forgiven. But the good news goes beyond that. 
It's not just that your sins are forgiven, but now Christ has ascended. He is in heaven and is interceding for you. And you can come to him at any point and ask for his help. So, who cares about the ascension of Jesus? It's not something we hear taught on very much. I mean, seriously, when's the last time you heard somebody give a message on the ascension of Jesus Christ? And not only that, the so what about the ascension of Jesus Christ? These five benefits, I hope, will be something that will not just be academic for you, but that will be comforting for you. To take it beyond the realm of simply, well, I'm glad Jesus is there and he's going to come get me one day. But while he's there, he's doing this for you. Let's pray. Father, how great it is to be able to look into your word and see the single driving passion of the life of Christ, the eagerness with which he had to come back into your presence at the ascension. For the joy set before him, he was able to endure the cross, despise its shame, and to become obedient even to death on a cross. And we're told to have the same mindset that Christ did, So give us strength to do that, Lord, as we endure the cross of our lives and whatever the the needs are that we have. Help us to keep our ascension, as it were, the rapture, our resurrection, that hope at any moment that could occur, the blessed hope of being in your presence, the same hope that Jesus had. Let that be what drives us so that we also can endure the cross of our lives despising the shame, knowing that one day we will be with you in heaven. Lord, just as the ascension was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, as it was anticipated by Christ in the Gospels, as it was witnessed by the apostles in the book of Acts, as it was explained in the epistles, now it can be applied in our lives as our Savior, Jesus, sits at your right hand and intercedes for us, We are grateful for that ministry, his present ministry of intercession. Thank you that we can draw near to your throne and request grace and mercy at our time of need. And we pray in the name of our Savior, our intercessor, Jesus. Amen. 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 Amen.